Hey, if you want to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8, we are going to dive into that together this morning. And as second service, you get bonus content. This is not a part of first service because right after first service, my wife texts me and she says, call me, I have feedback. Awesome. Duh. She's, she's very gracious. She's like, Joe, it's so good. You did such a good job. Um, you tend to be at like 10, like all the time. I could tell you're really excited because you're like at forte. And if you want to just bring it to like a mezzo forte for some of it, that might be helpful. So I'm just going to apologize ahead of time here and say when I get excited about things, I like go up and I'm going to try and uh, go up sparingly, more, more sparingly than what I did in the first service. But we'll see how that goes. Um, so uh, I don't remember which camping trip it was <clears throat> because we took a lot of camping trips as a family, but I remember it was a special trip because it was just me and my dad on this particular time. And we spent the day setting up the camp and my dad was in the camper, I think doing dinner things, and uh, I was at the fire that we had built poking it with a stick. But this was a special stick because the stick had a nail in it. And I watched the nail turn from brown to black, to red, to like blue, to like white. And I'd never seen something turn white before and I thought, you know what? That doesn't actually look really hot. It looks kind of like ash and if I just like touched it, it would just like fall apart. And my dad came out of the camper just as he was seeing I was having this thought process. Like, and he did it right. He didn't, he didn't freak out, he didn't get all emotional. He just came up to me and he made a claim. The claim was, Joe, that nail is hot. And then he made a description. The description was, that nail will burn you. And then he made an appeal. Please don't touch the nail. <laughs> claim, a description, and an appeal. And so he went back into work on dinner, and the first thing I did is I questioned the claim. Well, it doesn't look hot. I mean, it... It looks white, and white's not hot. Red's hot, blue maybe hot, but white, no, it'll just fall apart. So I questioned the claim. And then I doubted the description. So if it's not hot, then I doubt it'll actually burn me. And so what I did is I ignored the appeal, and I went ahead, and I grabbed that nail, and I was like, ah! <laughs> right? It marked me for months and it seared in my brain forever what the meaning of white hot is, right? And claims and descriptions and appeals happen in all of our lives. Maybe it's happened to you, right? People have made claims and descriptions and appeals, and maybe you've had a broken heart in the past because of a bad relationship decision. Or maybe you've had broken bones because you thought your body was capable of something that clearly wasn't. Or maybe there's financial hardship in your past because of bad investments. Or maybe there's even strained friendships because someone had advised you not to say the things that you decided to say. But today what we're gonna see is way more important than just nails or friendships. We're gonna see the author and creator of everything make some statements. And here's the proposition for this morning. How we respond to the claims, description, and appeal of Christ defines our past, determines our present, and secures our future and all eternity. One more time. How we respond to the claims, description, 
and the appeal of Christ defines our past, determines our present, and secures our future and eternity. Let's pray together this morning as we jump in. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can gather in freedom here this morning to openly proclaim that you are worthy and that you are good. And God, as we open your word this morning, may we walk out of this place changed by it. God, as your word is open, we're forced to make a decision, and God, help us to decide to honor you and to glorify you with, with what you give us. We pray these things in your son's name, amen. Well, today's sermon breaks itself up into three pretty clear sections, and you've actually heard those sections read this morning. That was completely apart. My preparation and the worship team's preparation, actually, it was a God thing that those three sections are the very sections that we're going to cover today. And so the first section, verses 12 through 20, is the claim that Christ makes. And then 21 through 30, we see the further description of that claim. And then I would say 31 through 38 this morning are kind of an appeal that Christ makes as to what we should do with that. So we'll start in verse 12. And the first phrase that we read is, again, Jesus said to them, or Jesus spoke to them again, And this word again lets us know that there's something happening before we ever got here. So we want to quickly set the stage here and look at the setting of this. And John 8, 12 is actually connected to the end of John 7. If you'll remember last week, Nate Irwin masterfully unfolded that John 8, 1 through 11 isn't included in the early manuscripts. And so what's happening here is the... Where we pick up is actually right after the end of chapter 7. And what had happened was the Pharisees had sent officers to arrest Jesus. And the officers hear Jesus' teaching and they come back empty-handed to the Pharisees. And they're like, Jesus actually is a really powerful speaker and I think what he's saying might actually be true. And the Pharisees kind of mock the officers and they, they make a claim. They say, see that no prophet ever arose from Galilee. And they go and they come into the crowd here and they're at the Feast of Booths where Jesus is speaking and they're gonna try and get to the bottom of what's going on and hopefully arrest Jesus, discredit him, and then continue to remain in power. So that's kind of where we pick up today. And um, I'm now five minutes into my sermon and I've gotten through the first phrase of the first verse out of 26. So let's move just a little bit quicker here. Jesus spoke to them. This is going to be a phrase that you're going to see again and again and actually, and actually nine times over the next portions of scripture here. And this is a back and forth conversation that develops as we go. And like rapid fire, Jesus keeps addressing the crowd that they might believe who he is, believe where he came from, believe who his father is, and believe what he came to do. And what we see is that there are responses to the claim, the description, and the appeal. So number one, the claim. What exactly is the claim that Jesus makes? He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the second of seven metaphorical I am statements that Jesus makes. Just a few weeks ago in John 6, we heard the statement, I am the bread of life. 
Today it is I am the light of the world. In the future here in John 10, we'll see I am the door of the sheep and I am the good shepherd. And then in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in John 15, I am the true vine. But this statement, I am the light of the world, how deep do we go into this was the question that I first faced. Because light and darkness are used throughout John to delineate between belief and unbelief. And I was working with my small group and they gave me some notes on this passage and they said, Joe, listen, light of the world is like an endless rabbit trail. And if you start going down that, you may never come back, so don't go too deep. I said, okay, that's really good advice. So I just have five quick things to say about light of the world, okay? So the first is this, what is the light of the world? What does that mean? Well, the first thing that happens with light is light exposes darkness. All right, let's go back to camping, right? Because I went camping a lot as a child because my family loved me and you should go camping because it's great. But side note from that, when you're camping like in a real camp space, not like at a campground, but like where it's dark, you have a lantern and that lantern gives off light. And what you do is you can sit in that light and then when you look out into the darkness, it exposes how dark it really is. And so you're sitting in the light and you're feeling good and you're like, oh, I have to go to the bathroom now. I am going to go now into the darkness and die and you will die coming to look for me in just a minute because it's really dark out there. And see, the same thing happens is the light exposes how dark it is. And when Jesus, the light of the world, comes into our life, what happens is we're sitting in the light and exposes how dark sin really was. You remember when you came to faith and you're like, how dark, how ugly, how, how horrible that sin is and how dark and how ugly and how horrible sin is now to me because light exposes darkness. Not only that, light extinguishes darkness. So each night when I go to bed, usually my wife goes to bed before me and I have to make an eight to 10 foot trip from my door to my bed without dying. So immediately what I do is I love the Apple Watch because I immediately just turn on the Apple flashlight and it's just enough so that it will extinguish the darkness around me. It extinguishes the darkness and I can see all of the pitfalls and traps that lay in wait for me to, to kill myself on on the way to bed because it is extinguished and it reveals what's really there. And what happens is when Jesus came into your life, he actually extinguishes the darkness. He pushes away, he gets rid of the sin that was there and it, it, it's, it's covered by his death and resurrection. It extinguishes the darkness. So it exposes it, it extinguishes it, and then light brings clarity and reveals truth. Okay, anybody in here under the age of 10? Anybody in here under the age of 10? Why do we sleep with the light on? Because we're scared, right? Because we have convinced ourselves there are monsters under our bed and if we turn off the light, surely they will come out from under the bed, they will eat us and it will end our life. Don't worry, they're not there, it's okay. But that's why we, we, we sleep with the light on because it reveals that there aren't actually monsters there. It brings the truth to life. And what happens here is Jesus does that same thing, is when he lights up our world, he reveals how things truly are, how we're supposed to live, who he truly is, and he allows us to understand that. So it exposes, it extinguishes, it brings clarity and truth. But here's the other thing that I was thinking about with light. 
Prolonged exposure to light reminds us of the truth in dark times. That's why believers look at this passage and think the Pharisees as dense because we've been in the light and we're saying, he's right there in front of you. Why can you not see it? I've been in the light and I can see, I can see that it's true. That's also why I don't still sleep with the lights on. Because what happened through my childhood, the light reminded me again and again and again, there are no monsters here. You are safe. Everything is okay. And I could turn off the light because I remembered the truth that was revealed to me when the light was on. That's why it is crucially important to have a steady diet of the word of God when you are in good times to have the church and a community of believers around you because then when death and sin and injustice and hardship comes, we are reminded of the light in those dark times. Even though we can't see because it's so dark, we know because we've experienced that so many times in the light. So the light, a prolonged exposure to light reminds us of the truth in dark times and the adverse is true as well. Prolonged exposure to darkness makes the light harsh and hard. That's why you've been sleeping all night and your five-year-old comes in at 5 a.m. and flicks on the light. It, ah, right? It's angering and frustrating and harsh and hard and it, it's that. It's uncomfortable. And that's why the Pharisees and unbelievers and those who are far from Christ come to this passage and they view it as mean and uncaring. How can he be so straightforward and so, so rough with them? And that's why when at the light reveals sin in our own lives, if we've been in the darkness too long, we don't like that. And if God reveals something, what should happen is action should follow. But here's what happens. Jesus makes this claim. I am the light of the world, and light means all of those things. And then what happens is the Pharisees question him. And perhaps, just like the Pharisees, that's what you're doing today. You've come in, and you're like, you know what? I've started to doubt that Jesus really has my best interest in mind. Or I've started to doubt that what Jesus says about my life or about my situation is even true at all. Listen to what the Pharisees say. He says, listen, you're bearing witness about yourself, so your testimony is not true. And what the leaders of the law are trying to do is they're trying to catch Jesus in his own words. Because if you look at John chapter 5 and verse 31, Jesus actually says this. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. But if the Pharisees would have kept listening, and we keep reading in John chapter 5, he says this, there's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. And he continues to say this. He lets the Pharisees know that he has multiple witnesses. The Father and himself both bear witness about his testimony being true, that he truly is the light of the world. He gives the context for his additional witnesses, mainly claiming that he is the Son of God. Not only does God bear witness to me, but because I and the Father are one, this testimony is true, and I'm the Son of God. He does so again and again throughout this passage. And you see the claim is connecting him to way more than just light. It's revealing his authority and his heritage and his mission and his destiny. So this question was, how can your testimony be true? Jesus straightforwardly addresses. And he says, you don't get it. Listen, verse 14, you don't know where I come from or where I am going. 
He's saying, you still don't understand, let alone believe that I'm the son of God. And in verse 15, he says, you judge according to the flesh, and I don't, I judge no one. And this is a qualification of judgment because, of course, Jesus makes judgments and will make the ultimate judgment for all eternity, but he doesn't judge the way the Pharisees did, according to the flesh. And what the Pharisees thought is, we've got this all together. We've made the proper judgments about our fellow man, about ourselves, and yes, Jesus, about you, because we've set the standards, we've set the rules, because we believe we're connected to God. And here's the problem. If we keep making decisions about Christ based upon our view of things, we'll never get it right. The Pharisees still don't get it. Jesus is telling them, you don't know where I've come from. You don't know where I'm going. You're judging it all wrong. And they say, okay, well, then who is your father? And Jesus goes a step further. Look what he says in verse 19. You know neither me nor my father. You don't know what I'm about, and the worst part is you don't even know who God is. Jesus goes a step further from his statement in verse 14 about not knowing where he is from and says that they don't belong to God. And this was a source of pride for the leaders of the law, right? They knew God, they thought, because of their strict adherence to the Mosaic law and then their own additions on top of that. And Jesus literally punches them in the gut and says, listen, you don't know God, you're not his. It gets even worse next week when he says, guess what? Not only are you not God's, your dad is actually the devil. Could you imagine the rage and disbelief the people must have felt at Christ's words? How dare he tell them what they're supposed to do? How dare he he thinks he has the authority to tell us what we know is right? They think they've done everything right according to their own standards, and it's no wonder they want to kill him. It's like it's 5 a.m. for the Pharisees and someone just flicked on the light and they're, ah! That is harsh and that is hard and that will not do. They think they've done everything right according to them, but maybe that's not too far off from today, right? We think we've done everything right according to us. But when Jesus says the light of the world reveals the sin in our own life, we have that same response. How dare you? And what the response should be is, God, help me. No matter how angry they were and how much they wanted to arrest him or kill him, verse 20 is staggering, and I love that Eric brought it up. It says, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. This hour is referring to Jesus' death. And there is supernatural protection in the mission of God when our time is not yet up as determined by God. So at the base, what is the claim that we're looking at that Jesus is making? It's this. Jesus is who he says he is. He will do what he says he will do. He has come to reveal that to the world, hence his claim to be the light. The light reveals how it really is, not how we think it should be. And this is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable, right? That Jesus is right. Because if that's true, then I can't live any way that I want. So the unbelieving world says that just can't be right. But this is what a believing world needs to be constantly reminded of, right? That Jesus is right. 
that he is who he says he is. He'll do what he said he will do. He has come from the Father. He is connected to God, and everything that he says will come to pass. So no matter what's happening in my life right now, the light of the world has revealed the truth, and because I've been spending time in the light, I can know that whether I'm in the light or I'm in the darkness and for all of eternity. That's why this claim is so important. The Pharisees thought their claims about themselves and about others is what made them holy, about their adherence to the law, about their ability to appear righteous rather than to be righteous before God. And so here's the question, who makes the claim about you? Is it you or is it the light of the world who reveals what's true about you? So Jesus then, after he makes this claim, continues to describe what happens. The nail is hot. I'm the light of the world. It will burn you. Here's what's going to happen if you don't believe this. Look at the description that Jesus gives in verse 21. He says, you will seek me and you will die in your sins. Sorry, let's go back because this is important. You will seek me and you will die in your sin. This is the consequence for unbelief. And what Jesus goes through is a series of compare and contrasts here. You will seek, but you will die. You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. And in context here, Jesus is stating that the Jews don't believe him. They don't believe he is the light of the world. They don't believe he is the Messiah. Because of this, when Jesus goes away, they're gonna continue to look for the Messiah. They're gonna continue searching for him, and because they missed the claim of Christ, the description that Christ gives now applies to them. They will die in their sin because they missed the Messiah. Sin here is singular. Sin is the sin of unbelief. Their unbelief is blatant. And we know this because they still don't ask the right questions. They think he's going to kill himself. Well, is he going to kill himself? He says he's going to go somewhere. We can't go. Don't understand that. Yet Jesus continues to push and explain. He says, you will seek me and you will die in your sin. And he says, then you are from below. That doesn't mean hell. What that means is he's talking about earth. They are so focused on what is happening on the earth, in the flesh, according to the law, that they've completely missed the grace and the truth and the light of the world standing right in front of them. And with our 2020 hindsight here, we look at this and we say, how dumb can these Pharisees be? I mean, he's answered all their questions. He's made the claim. He's given them description. How, how, how dense are they? But really, church? Really? Because the same thing's happening today. Christ isn't just speaking back then. Through his word and the power of his spirit, he's saying the same thing to you. I'm the light of the world. And are you so concerned, are we so concerned with the things of the world below that we can't see and hear and respond to the light right in front of us? Are we so concerned with cleaning up our act or getting our kids to behave appropriately, or losing the weight, or finding a mate, or doing more Bible story, Bible studies, or trying better, or doing harder, right? It's, it's all those things. And all of it, for me, came down to verse 24. I was like struck. Thinking of all the things that I chase, or I try to fix, or I, I try to fit into this life for my happiness. 
And I had done all my preparations. I had read through and I had marked up all the things for this sermon. And then I had started some work on it. And I came back and I reread it. And then I hit 24 and I was, I was struck dumb. I literally froze. And it was like for a minute there, I was transferred into the group, into the crowd of Jews, hearing Jesus talk. And when I look up at Jesus, Jesus locks eyes with me. And his eyes are not angry, but they're pleading with me. And he looks dead at me and verse 24 says this. He says, I told you. I told you you would die in your sin. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And that same Christ is today through his word, through his spirit, looking into each of you today and he's saying, I told you, I told you that unless you believe that it's me, that I'm the truth, that I'm the light of the world, that it's really, really true, you're going to die in your sins. All of it comes down to this one little point and sinner, today is the day when he looks at you and he says, I told you, please believe. Look at Jesus not as angry and judging, but perhaps pleading. So my dad, the nail will burn you. Your sin will kill you. Please don't touch the nail. Please believe in me. Believe that God is holy, that you are not, that Jesus does save, and that through that, he then becomes everything our life is about. See yourself in this story not as the third party who looks down and says, how dumb can they be? But you're one of the people who is in the crowd and then asks this question because the next question they ask is, who are you then? And hear Jesus' response, just as I've been telling you from the beginning. The whole time, church, all of the sermons all of the worship, all of the community, all of the things that we've been going, all of the book of John, all of the book of the Bible here is leading to one point. Believe. Please, believe. If you never have believed for the first time that Jesus is who he says he is, will do what he says he will do, believe. And if you have believed, perhaps you've gotten away from that belief and you need to return and say, this is what life is all about. Jesus is who he says he is, and because of that, he gets to speak at who I am. And if you are doing that, then make this the rallying cry. Jesus is the light of the world. I believe that, and he reveals what's true about me. And I will not die in my sins because Jesus has covered those. Amen and amen. But alas, I understand that there are those who, even though the claim is made and the, and the description is clear, they still won't believe. They still got to touch the nail. So Christ describes one more thing. Look in verse 28. He says, so Jesus said to them, when you had lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. You see, the crowds didn't have the whole picture that we do today. Jesus lets them know that at his death and resurrection, they will know that he is predicting and he is telling them the truth. And then when that happens, they should look back and they should be able to say, he truly was the son of God. It was Jesus claiming something radical for they didn't know the cross. It was Jesus acting for the father and he wasn't alone. He was making it clear for them that everything that he was saying was from the father and was, which was true. So believe, 
With us, the picture of the cross in full view, believe, it's true. It's not radical, it's true. Believe under salvation or believe under life change or believe under continued fidelity to Christ. But sinner and saint, today again, John is saying that you might believe. And then verse 30. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. And so Jesus, after he makes this claim and as he describes this, he then moves through to an appeal and he says, this is what happens. In the next portion, it says that this passage is to those that believed in him. In verse 31 there, it says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, but we know from what follows in this passage is it's not true belief. It's almost as if they were doing what they're supposed to without the heart behind it. It's like if I never touched that nail, I would have had to learn from something else about what it means to be white hot. I would have done what was asked, but not believed what was said. Is that you? Are you doing what's asked, but not believing what Christ said? Because that is partial belief. And that's what Jesus immediately addresses in this passage. In verse 31, he says this, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. D.A. Carson says it this way. He says, Jesus now lays down exactly what it is that separates spurious faith from truth faith, fickle disciples from genuine disciples. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Hold means to abide and to remain. In short, perseverance is the mark of true faith, of real disciples. A genuine believer remains in Jesus' word, his teaching. Such a person obeys it, seeks to understand it better, and finds it more precious, more controlling, precisely when other forces flatly oppose it. It is the one who continues in the teaching who has both the Father and the Son. So here it is, church. Jesus lays out exactly what it looks like to truly believe, to truly follow him, and to trust the claims that he has made. And doing so brings forth freedom. Yet again, the partial believers miss the point. They want to justify what they're doing, and they say, they say, we are free. We're not slaves, or so they think. They say, how can you say that we will become free? We're child of Abraham. We're, ch- we're Abraham's descendants. It's all about where we've come from. It's not about who you are. It's about who we are and what we think of the situation. And Jesus responds, and he says that when we continually sin, we prove that sin has enslaved us. And by sinning, we are continuing in our enslavement. So sin gets a hold of us, and then we keep sinning, and we keep allowing sin to have that hold on us. And he says what happens is, when Jesus comes in as the light of the world, he reveals that truth, and he reveals what is really there, and he shows us who we are and how we're supposed to be connected to him and connected to God the Father. And what happens is, when he reveals that, if we believe that that's true, and we remain in the teaching and in relationship with him, he sets us free from the bondage of sin. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm no longer a slave to sin because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished in my life through his work on the cross because he is the light of the world. That's what he's saying. And 
And the Pharisees are like, we're not, we're, we are free. And Jesus says, listen, it's not about your lineage. It's about your love. And your love is connected to who you think you are, not who I say you are. So love me, believe me, because this is the message that's from God through me to you today. You see, with Christ, it's not about your past, who we were or who our parents were, what we have or haven't done. Jesus defines the past when we, def- when we trust him. And with Jesus, it's not about our present, if we're good enough or if we're smart enough or if we're, we're holy enough because we never will be. Jesus determines our present. And the appeal then from Christ is that we believe his claim and we heed his appeal to stay in his word in relationship with him. So I opened this morning with a proposition. I said, how you respond to the claim, description, and appeal that Christ presents will define your past, determine your present, and secure your future. And so I see three responses that are available to you today. Number one, the blatant unbelief of the Pharisees. Maybe you come in here and you said, I don't, I don't, I don't believe that, I never have, I never will, it doesn't matter. And what I would say to you today is, verse 24, Jesus is looking at you right now and he's saying, I told you, if you don't believe that I am he, you're gonna die in your sins. And maybe the Spirit's working and it might say, maybe there's a chance, maybe that is a possibility and there would be elders and pastors up here who would love to talk to you about that at the end of the service. So the first response is blatant unbelief. The second response is partial belief. And maybe you, like the the crowds back then, love the idea of Jesus. You love the popularity of Jesus. You love the miracles that Jesus brings. Maybe today you love the forgiveness that God gives so that you can sin and still feel good about who you are. And what Jesus is saying is it's not about partial belief. It's not doing what you're told without the heart. It's giving me everything. And maybe it's time for you, Christian, to say, I'm done living in both worlds, and I need to approach God as he has asked me to, as he's revealed in the light. And I need to say, God, you are the way. You are the truth. are the life and that I am going to follow you fully, not partially. And I am going to abide in your word just as you have appealed for me to do. And I'm going to walk in relationship with you, not only on Sunday so I can get what I want, but each day throughout the week. So there's blatant unbelief, there's partial belief, and then there's true belief that's revealed by Christ. And true belief are those who know Jesus, who know his word and walk in relationship with him. And that doesn't have to be done perfectly, but it has to be done consistently. And what I would say is if you're in that response, then I would say, one, praise the Lord. Keep going. Keep making it happen. And then I would say, number two, be careful of the pharisaical fallacy, which is this. I think I've got it all together. Thanks. Because as soon as you think you've got it all together, it's about to fall apart. And Jesus, as the light of the world might be revealing to you today, you don't have it all together. And you still need Jesus to reveal where your sin and darkness is so that he can expose it and extinguish it. So how you respond today to the claim, the description, and the appeal of Jesus determines everything. And my hope and prayer for our church is that we would believe. Pray with me. God, help us to believe God, there are those of us who, who believe, yet we need help in our unbelief, God. God, would you help us to see 
our Savior this morning, making the claims that he does, God, that it would affect our hearts and our minds and lives in such a way that we walk out of this place loving you more and living for you in a greater way, God. Not because that's what we've been asked to do, but that's because what we want to do because you've changed our hearts. God, thank you for this time and the word together. May this week be a time where we, re- we reflect and we reveal the light of the world, and we thank you for it in your son's name. Amen.